Well, I uh, had just laid down last night about 12 o'clock when I heard my daughter starting to cry, and Shiloh woke us up with puke all over her bed. And it has been a glorious night. So uh, all of you who've ever been parents or been around kids uh, can kind of understand that. Well, we're in the middle uh, of a three-week kind of series called Thirsty. And we've been talking particularly about a story in the Bible in John chapter 4. And John is in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And John was a, um, a friend, uh, one of the disciples. And he tells the story about uh, Jesus um, going to a well uh, to connect with a person uh, who was far from God. And so what I want to do this morning, just to uh, kind of refresh uh, the story for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, and uh, for those of you who were here, um, to kind of help you remember a little bit more, uh, we want to just make a few observations here right at the beginning before we dig deeper. The story goes like this. Jesus goes to a well, and there is a woman at the well, and it's just he uh, and her. It's at the noontime uh, of the day, very hot part of the day. No one else is at the well. And his disciples have uh, gone on into town to get some food, and then they were going to meet up at the well later on. Now, there's a, a few observations that we made last week and that we want to remember going into this week. The first observation is this, that it was amazing that Jesus, being a man, even connected uh, with this woman. It was amazing that Jesus, being a man, even talked to this woman. You see, the culture that Jesus was raised in was a very male-dominated culture, very uh, patriarchal. The women were kind of second-class citizens. And you would never see a man alone and a woman alone by themselves. It was just against the cultural norm. And so uh, this norm already, Jesus comes and he breaks the rule of the culture because he meets the woman at the well. The second thing is it's remarkable that Jesus, being a Jew, had anything to do whatsoever with a Samaritan. It's remarkable. That's kind of the second point if you want to fill it in. It's just remarkable that being a Jew, that he would have anything to do with a Samaritan. You see, Samaritans were this despised people. They were called half-breeds, uh, religious uh, people who uh, no one really, if you were a good Jew, wanted anything to do with. They were uh, even called, at the worst case scenario, demon-possessed by Jews. And the Jews just didn't talk to Samaritans. And then here's kind of a third observation. The character of this woman is very shady. Um, it was unheard of for someone in Jesus' stature, being a teacher, uh, being a rabbi, being a person of the law, for him to have anything to do with a woman who had this shady reputation. Now, like I said, Jesus uh, comes to the well... Uh, simply to ask for a drink. But he has a lot more in mind than that. And it kind of shocks the woman that he would even come to the well asking for a drink because of these three criteria. And then he uses this whole idea of water because they're at a well as kind of a metaphor to talk about something bigger and larger. He was saying, this is not just about this physical water that you drink. But he says, I want to talk about a living water. And so let's start in verse 13, and let's pick up at that point. In verse 13 it says, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water that was pumped out of the well, everyone who drinks that water will be thirsty again. And those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, 
Sir, give me some of this water so that I won't get thirsty and won't have to keep coming to this stinking well to draw water. Okay, that's an interpretation there a little bit. But you think about it, noontime, and she would walk for miles, most people would, to this well. So Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. And it's like she's walking away and then she just kind of stops and she does a turn and she says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you don't have a husband. He says, in fact, you've had five husbands and the guy that you're shacking up right now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now let's pause there just for a moment. And I want you to see what a heart-to-heart conversation kind of looks like uh, with Jesus. Because all of us want that. We want a conversation with God. We want to know uh, what to expect, how that's going to happen. And so let's talk about that a little bit. A conversation with Jesus, first of all, looks like this. He looks beyond the surface. When you have a conversation with Jesus, He always looks beyond what is right in front of us, what is the surface. Beyond any mask, beyond any cover, beyond anything that she's trying to hide to camouflage who she really is, Jesus gets beyond all of that and he said, I'm not concerned about all of that stuff. And he gets to who she really is. You see, what he finds is that she is living in a desert. A desert in her own life in which she is longing for some kind of filling up. And she is very very thirsty. He sees her broken past. He sees her hurts. And I doubt that anyone had ever spoken to her quite in this penetrating way. So honest before her. And as we saw last week, that the woman uh, comes and she does what many of us do. When someone gets a little bit too close to the truth in our lives, what do we do? We change the subject, right? We're like, whoa, 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 that, that's a little bit too much. Let's talk about something else. And uh, that's what happens. She changes the subject. And uh, Jesus knew for her, and he knows for you and me as well, that when truth comes into our life, even though it might hurt for the, the moment, it actually brings great freedom and light to our life. That kind of leads us to a second piece of our conversation. Uh, when you have a conversation with Jesus, you can expect this, and this is uh, the second piece here, is that he longs to hear the truth. He longs to hear the truth from us. You know, one of the things that I've learned uh, in my life is that I'll do almost anything, and maybe you do too, to kind of suppress or press down the truth that often is in our lives, especially those things we don't want other people to know. And those dark places, those skeletons in our closet, we'll suppress it down, we'll hide it forever. But again, uh, that doesn't lead to freedom. It only leads to placing yourself in a prison. Uh, And you know it, but no one else does. It's kind of a solitary confinement, you might say. When we first started the JAR, there was a family uh, who started connecting. We were still meeting in homes. And a uh, husband and wife, a couple of kids. And it was pretty obvious that there were some definite issues that were going on in their lives. And uh, we found out that they had both been using some drugs, but they would never admit it to us. They'd just kind of deny and they go, oh, no, 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 no. And finally, after a couple of years, the mom actually came to us and said, hey, you know, I have been, he has too, and and I really want to stop. And so we got her connected into some recovery program, and and, uh, she started doing much better. But during this whole time, too, she stopped connecting at the jar, and she kind of just fell away from the wayside, and and I just lost contact with them. But eventually, I kind of heard through the grapevine that uh, that the husband had left the family, And when that happened, that she started using again. And um, then I learned that 
in the midst of her using that CPS, Child Protective Services was, was called in and the children were actually taken away uh, because they found drugs and, and were, were taken away and put into foster care. And um, she was charged with neglect. But she never called her family. She never told anyone in the church. She just kind of kept it all a secret to herself. But I heard about it eventually, and so I went up to visit her in jail, and she's in the orange garb, and there's this little cubicle that we're in. And we both pick up the the phone to talk back and forth, and the look of shame and the look of guilt was just overwhelming, and she kind of put her head down. And then she lifted it up, and this is what she said. I can't forgive myself. I can't. Forgive myself. It was about that time that I just started sharing with her about the power of God's grace. That there is nothing in this world, there is nothing you can do, nothing you can do more, nothing you can do less, that will keep God from loving you. I shared with her about the forgiveness of God that is like a fountain, like this fountain that we're talking about that flows out into her life And he would constantly forgive her. And I've had many conversations with other people since then. And it reminds me, folks, about the fact that sometimes the burdens that we carry, when they're secret and we keep them to ourselves and we don't share with God or with anyone else, it just gets so burdensome. And God never intended for us to ever carry secrets alone. He said, I'm here, and there are people, my church, that are around there to help you walk through this thing called life. You see, folks, if we were to take a survey this morning, a lot of us would say, well, I've never been in jail before, but I've been in a prison for a while. And it's because of the guilt and the shame that we've had over something from our past or some sin. And most of us would really be terrified if anyone ever knew some of the stuff in our life. For instance, uh, let's say right now that we put on both of these screens all the worst things that Chris Bunch has ever done, ever thought, ever said, and he put, we put them both on, don't do that. But, you know, if they, if they did that, you know. I'll tell you what, guys, there are things in this room right now that I've only told maybe one or two people in my life because there's some shame, there's some guilt, there's some hurt, there's some pain, there's some sin, there's some secret. And Jesus comes to this conversation with this woman at the well. And he's basically saying, hey, we've got to get the truth out. Between you and me, we've got to admit this thing and explore it so that you would eventually get freedom. Let's look at some of the words of John, the same guy uh, who wrote uh, this story about the woman at the well. He wrote a letter later on in 1 John. and, And just so that we're all awake this morning, we have some energy, let's wake up. And we'll read this together. It'll come up on the side screen. Let's read this together. This is the message that we heard from Him and declared to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. We can't receive the living water that Jesus promises to us if we don't first admit the brokenness and the emptiness and the sinfulness in our life. And first of all, we need to tell God. It's not like this is a secret to God, you know. I mean, He already knows it. But He wants us to admit it. To admit it. To pour it out of ourselves. As we'll learn the woman in the well did later on in the story. He already knows it. So we simply have to admit it to Him and let Him know that we're genuinely sorry. And then the second thing is, is that we need to reveal the truth to another human being. It doesn't have to be 20 people. That's why I said, I'm not going to tell all of you all the dirty stuff on the screen. But you need to tell someone. Someone that you trust. Someone that will give grace to you. Will let you know that they're loved and cared for. I've done this several times with friends. And uh, with my wife. And, and over the last couple of years, i found it to be so important for me that once a week I meet with another guy and the good, the bad, the ugly in my life gets thrown out there and it comes back to me and he does the exact same. And you would think that that would be a horrible thing because you watch on Dr. Phil and Oprah, you know, and those people are like, oh, I have this one dirty secret. And then they're all like, go to hell. And you're like, that was therapeutic, you know? But that's not what it has to be like with a person who's filled with grace and they're not trying to fix you. They're just trying to get you to the fixer, the one who will give you freedom. And it's been very freeing for me. But I just want to ask you this morning, what are some of the secrets you're hiding from God? And what are some of the secrets that maybe you're hiding from people who are closest to you? Right now, I have a feeling that you know there is one thing that really needs to be brought to the light. Even if it took place a long, long time ago, what is that thing that needs to be brought to the light? Well, let's uh, see how this woman responds to Jesus when he brings out this truth. It says after, uh, you know, he gives the truth, she tries to change the subject. He says, she says, let's talk about religion. Now, you know the three things you never talk about are what? Politics, religion, and money. And she's like, oh, no, 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 I'll go ahead, let's talk about religion. He's like, hey, we're not going down that road. He said, I'm the promised one. I'm the Messiah. One of the first people Jesus ever tells who he actually is until his death on the cross. And the disciples return from their grocery shopping trip. And let's pick it up in verse 27. It says this. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar... The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now there's a very significant key phrase that I want you guys to pick up on. And uh, it's this. Leaving her water jar. Leaving her water jar. Uh, Derek, if you would, there's a water jar right there at that. Uh, could you bring that up for me uh, for a second? Now, Derek's not a woman, but... Uh... <laughs> Thanks. But, but she brings this water jar to the well. Now, why does she bring it? You get water, right? So, you know, we pump the water out. And she's sitting there, and now her water jar is filled. And it says what? What happened? She left her water jar. Why would she leave her water jar? That's the whole reason she came to begin with, was to get water. Why would she get water and then just leave that jar at the well? Well, I think the reason was she was so excited. 
She was so energetic, she was so enthusiastic that she had met Christ that maybe, just maybe, he really was the person who was going to let her know that she's loved and cared for. And whether she had five husbands or 500 husbands, no matter what she did, that he's going to love her and care for her and give her strength. And all of a sudden, she doesn't even care about water anymore. She leaves her water jar and she runs away. And it started making me think about what is it that you and I carry all the time that we hold on to real tightly. Yours may not be the same as hers, but there's no doubt about it that we all carry some water jars. For me, my water jar for probably the first 38 years of my life, it's only been the last two years, was achievement. I just figured that if I achieved enough, I kind of had this achievement plan that if I achieved enough and I was a, a pastor and, and people liked me and I was a great pastor and, and all of that, that that would fill my jar enough and I would be full and my soul would be satisfied. For other people, what their water jar is, is work. There's like this intoxication with work. You have your self-worth based upon your work. That you just work and work and work and work. Maybe that's you. For others of us, our thirst is pleasure. We talked about that last week. And we seek it at all costs. At all costs. Maybe for some of you, your water jar is an addiction. It might be alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be pornography. It might be uh, shopping. Or maybe what controls you actually isn't something bad, it's something good. It's like maybe it's your family or the activities of the family. Or maybe what your water jar is, is your relationships. But I just want you to know, folks, that none of these water jars will quench your thirst. Nothing that that I just shared, none of those will ever quench your thirst. And we need to learn, like she did, that you have to abandon the water jar, if you want living water. Chuck Mock started uh, attending the jar in Easter of 2005. He's our uh, ministry coordinator for Celebrate Recovery. He does a lot of uh, great things here in the church. And most of all, he's become one of my best friends. He's that friend of mine that I meet with weekly. And we share the good, the bad, and the ugly in our lives. And um, one of the greatest joys of being a pastor is that every once in a while, you find someone that you're like, I wish I could be more like him. I wish I could surrender my life more like him. And it's been such a joy to watch how he surrendered more and more of his life to Christ. Now, there are a lot of people in the jar who uh, surrender their lives to Christ. A lot of you guys do that. But if we were going to have a poster child for surrender... Uh, it would be Chuck Mock. And I think we have a picture uh, of that, actually. That's him being surrendered uh, a little bit. Um, But seriously, Chuck has been on this path of surrender uh, for the last six months, or last six years, and uh, I would like you to uh, hear his story this morning. Would you welcome Chuck uh, to the show? That picture was uh, must have been from me and you at the Mardi Gras, Chris. We had a lot of fun that night. Well, Chuck, first of all, uh, thanks so much for sharing your story uh, with us this morning. And uh, I, w- I know that you uh, grew up in uh, the big metropolis called Winchester, uh, home of Wicks Pies. I think that's probably the only thing that it's known for, but... Uh, well, no, it's actually uh, the mighty 2A Winchester Golden Falcons, who's been to the state championship three times in the last 12 years from there, too. So. Oh, my Thank gosh. you, Winchester people. Okay, anyone that clapped, you are going to talk to me afterwards, okay? It's like all of Winchester just showed up, you know? <laughs> Now, Chuck, uh, you weren't raised in a Christian family. Um, 
and God really wasn't on the radar as you grew up. Can you just talk a little bit uh, about your story uh, with that? Yeah, well, um, as you said, I wasn't raised in a in a Christian family. God wasn't something that that we talked about growing up. Uh, church wasn't something that we that we went to. Although, you know, I did a few times when when I was a when I was a kid, but. Um, you know, in my family, there wasn't a lot of um, hugs or affection and stuff like that. I mean, you knew you were loved, but it wasn't really shown all that much in that respect. Uh, alcohol was always a big part, uh, still is a big part of in my extended family. And um, I began to experiment with a lot of stuff as a teenager. At the age of 16, when I got my driver's license, I kind of begin what I call, you know, my turn, so to speak. Uh, it's kind of where I turned away from a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I started smoking and drinking and um, some drugs was dabbling in the picture and, and sex. Uh, you, know, you kind of name it at that time. I was I was experimenting and dabbling in it at the age of 18. Right when I turned 18, actually, I I quit school and uh and I moved out of my parents' house. Okay. So, uh, 18, uh, you move out of your parents' house, but there was kind of this dream uh, that you had. And uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, as you know, a naive kid, I had a, you know, I had a dream I wanted to be a rock star. And... Uh, you know, I was a, a decent pian- uh, well piano player too, but but guitar player and uh, singer, and um, I was I was good with working crowds, and so I was playing bars and clubs, and and I and I even I even had a, a, a tad bit of radio stuff airplay, so so it was something that I was in Winchester, right? just in Winchester, yeah. yes. There, thank That's you. What I figured for that. Okay. But my my life itself was was a was a mess, and you know everything that happens in in bars and clubs when you're when you're playing music. I was participating in, and um, around that time I met my uh, future wife, and um, she she had gotten pregnant, and and I knew that you know music wasn't going to be something that was going to uh, support us. Yeah, not my music, anyways. <laughs> So uh, so I got my GED. I went to ITT and got a degree in heating and cooling, and, and I worked for some companies. And, and, and eventually it led up to me starting my own business. Um, and actually pretty quick, the, my business prospered pretty quick. And uh, so it was kind of like a new dream all of a sudden that, that I was having. And we, we were starting to have some money. It was building up to starting to make a decent living. And... Um, we had another child, and then we bought a, a nice house outside of Selma and uh, got a boat, was kind of living the dream, decided to have another child at that time. And uh, actually, life was pretty good. My outlook on life seemed to change a little bit. It seemed like that um, I had succeeded in a, in a lot of ways, and, and I couldn't really think of anything more that, that I might be missing. I, I had a a beautiful wife, three kids, uh, a bit of financial freedom for the first time. I mean, what more could I possibly want in my life? Yeah. So everything's going really well. Business is going well. Uh, not the dream of a rock star, but you're still playing in a band. Uh, and uh, good, successful business, kids, wife, money, uh, everything's going well. God's still not really on the radar screen, but um, some God things start popping up a little bit. And uh, could you kind of talk about that a little bit? Well, this is this is where the story begins to change a little bit here. Uh, one day I was on a job site and I was approached by a window installer who decided that it was my lucky day to hear how God had changed his life. And <laughs> and frankly, I was I wasn't real thrilled about it. I was thinking this Jesus freak guy, you know, can leave me alone. But uh, but he he did. He talked to me, and 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 really, it was kind of interesting to hear to hear his story, and I was intrigued a little bit by it. And he he invited me to his church that week, and for some reason, I decided to go. And me and my family we went that week, and 
you know, it, it wasn't like it was some life-changing experience because, honestly, we didn't even like it. I mean, I couldn't wait for it to be over just to, just to get out of there. But, it wasn't the jar. No, right? it okay. was not the jar. Just want you all to know that. Okay. But I do think that a, that a seed was planted because, you know, a short time after that, I started reading the Bible. And, you know, and I'd never did that before. And, and I was confused because I thought, okay, this is like a book. So you go to the beginning and you just start reading. And it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But, but, I, but I did keep reading it. And then months later, I heard a radio advertisement as I was driving for, for this church called The Jar. And they were having their first Easter celebration in the gymnasium at the YMCA. And, it, and the commercial had said, uh, talking about wearing pants. And I thought, hey, that's kind of cool, you know. I never heard of a church where you wear pants. So, blue jeans anyways, I guess. Uh, I don't want to know any other kind of churches like that that don't wear pants. You know, like yeah, that you, wasn't good. When you, when you select people to do these interviews, you really think you've really trained them well and everything's good. And, and now you all know that in the early days we were nudists, okay? Well, anyways... If you're from the paper, don't put that in there, okay? Anyways, I Blue heard jeans. the radio Blue advertisement. Jeans. And it was Blue Jeans, yes. Thank you for the correction. But uh, I decided to uh, come to the come to it the, actually the week before Easter, and, and it was just me and my daughter Courtney, and we just wanted to come check it out. And basically, I wanted to see, make sure it wasn't some weird cult or that this Chris Bunch guy it didn't have people drinking Kool Aid or something like that. You know, I wasn't for sure. But when we got here, the uh, the celebration. Uh, it had a lot less people than, than what's here now. There used to be, like that curtain up there used to hang down, and we, they had church on the other side, just a, in the half section right there. And it smelled like a gym. <laughs> still smells yeah, like a gym. still smells like a gym. But something that day, hearing you teach, and, and Isaac Pellerin was the worship leader at the time, something that day when I sat down, uh, it just, something hit me. Something hit me when I was here, and I honestly knew that my life was never going to be the same again. I mean, I didn't know how, I didn't know how my life was going to change, but I knew at that moment that my life was never going to be the same again. So at 34, I was 34 then, and that was kind of the first time that, that I was kind of saying no to myself, and I was saying yes, or I was at least saying maybe to God. So, and with that, I I, I, I came back again with the whole family the following week and and I mean I instantly started to change people in this church uh, began to invest in my life it wasn't like small steps I was taking I mean at some points it was like huge leaps that that I was um, that I was doing I was watching how you I was watching how other people in the church were conducting themselves and and I was honestly trying to follow the examples that was that was being set before me and I, I my heart was changing I mean I honestly started to love in ways that I'd never loved before I wanted to be the best father I could be I wanted to be a husband that I had failed to be for you know so many years before I was serving in the church and I was making myself available to be used by God in uh in, in ways that I just never thought was possible. I mean, I had family and I had my closest circle of friends that were just, you know, they thought I was just absolutely crazy, you know, making a, making a decision like I was making. And then that carried for a while and I was still taking steps and still growing. And, and then a little later, the, you had come up with an idea from a church conference to, to start what's called Celebrate Recovery. And I could feel God whispering to me, and God was just kind of uh, telling me that I was going to lead this program, yeah. and uh, which I just felt clueless with something like that because I didn't mind serving here, but actually leading a ministry. I mean, I, I just didn't know much about that, and I wasn't really for sure about it. But uh, I kind of felt the whisper from God, so it was kind of like, fine, you know, if, <laughs> if that's what you want, then then I'm willing to do it. Okay, uh, so. Starting, you know, you're starting to celebrate recovery. Things are going well. Your life is changing. Uh, but this path of surrender uh, is never without pain. And shortly after uh, Celebrate Recovery kind of started, 
um, your world really, your inner world kind of fell apart. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Well, after many good successful years, um, this was the time the economy took the turn all of a sudden, and uh, my business suffered very, very hard over it, and uh, all of a sudden the money started to dry up. Um, The boat had to go. We ended up losing our house. Um, I mean, I was, at that point, I was flat broke. I mean, I didn't have a dollar in my pocket, I remember at one point, and we had a rummage sale, actually, just to uh, get enough money to be able to rent a house and uh and I mean I just I just felt like a total failure you know I mean I just felt as low as you could be yet in the midst of all that even as I was still following whispers and stuff I could uh I continued to tithe I continued to give to this church I felt like that God was still calling me to uh be obedient to the best of my ability and that was something again I said fine then I'll do it uh in the midst of uh the financial problems, my marriage collapsed, and um, a divorce followed. Um, that was again one of the moments that uh, that I just kind of cried out to God, and I said, you know, I don't, I don't understand all of this. I don't like it, and frankly, God, I'm not sure I, I like you anymore. But, uh, but I'm going to continue to surrender and and do what I feel like that you're calling me to do. I remember Chuck and I, uh, in June of that year, we were out at uh, Prairie Creek, and we're like yelling at God, you know, and we're like cussing at Him, we're all upset and stuff. And I'm sure people drove by right then, they'd been like, isn't that the pastor of the jar? Why are they yelling up at the sky? Oh, they must be holy right now, you know. Um, But it was a tough time. But uh, Chuck... uh, in the midst of all that, though, you, you learned real surrender. And uh, this past Easter, uh, God gave you a huge gift. And uh, just wonder if you could talk about that a little. Well, I was here the night before Easter, and, and uh, I was setting up the stage. It was a few of us, actually, was doing that. And we were setting up some of them big idea props that Chris comes up with, but he has no idea how to actually implement any of it, so he needs other people to, to come in and do it. And... Uh, we had a a ladder. If you if, who was here for Easter, if you remember, there was a ladder set up here, and I mean, it just went all the way to the top. Chris was like, "I need it all the way up there." <laughs> so we was setting it up, and and everybody else slowly started to leave, and and it was just uh, it was just me and my son, my son Ethan, my seven year old, and we was. I was I was still up top because I was fastening everything. Because all of a sudden, as I look up there and I see all this stuff, I'm thinking, you know, this is unsafe. We, we've got to do something to, if that ended up falling or something. So I was, I was kind of strapping everything up top. And my son was down here in the gym, and he was just shooting baskets, just playing basketball, dribbling the ball and shooting. I was walking from here, going into the closet upstairs, and I was coming back, and then I was going, I was going out again, and I was keeping an eye on him. I could hear him dribbling. At one point, I heard the ball stop. Uh, so I. So I walked around to the window that's up in the back because I was up top and I looked down. And I seen Ethan walking across the gym floor and he was walking to the, to the stage. So I finished uh, what I was doing and then I went down and, and I seen that he was setting against the front of the stage and he was crying. And I asked him, I said, I said what's wrong? And he said that he thought that I'd forgotten about him. He thought that I had left him and he was scared and and he just felt all alone. And I told him, I said, Ethan, I was keeping an eye on you from up top. I was looking down at you. I love you. I mean, I would never, I would never leave you and I could never forget about you. And then I felt God whisper to me at that point saying, you know, Chuck, in these last two years, I've never forgot about you. I've never walked away from you. I've been watching you the whole time. And I'll continue to watch over you. Wow. What a moment. Um, well, tell me a little bit about your current state of surrender. You're kind of six years into this, and what does it look like now? Well, um, 
I've actually started dating again after after two years of uh, of not dating. I would put it that way. And and I've honestly decided that that I'm going to honor God with uh, with everything in my life, not just the uh, not just the easy things or the or the comfortable things that that maybe are, are a little easier to surrender to. And I've made a commitment that uh, I'm not going to have sex until I'm married again. That's something I feel very strongly about. I feel that God is telling me to to live that way. And I just honestly want to be the kind of person that leads by example. Uh, I, I just think you're never too old to to begin living your life the way that that God wants you to, even if it's against maybe society or what everybody perceives as the, as the way that, that you live nowadays, I honestly want to be a person of uh, integrity to the best of my ability. I have, a, uh, I have a scripture that's over top of my bed, and it's Proverbs 20, verse 7, and it says, A good man leads a life of integrity, and his children are blessed. And I just, I honestly want to be what God wants me to be. I want to be the kind of man that God wants me to be, but also, and even as equally important, I want to be the kind of man that I would want my daughters to marry. Well, um, when you think of this whole journey of surrender, kind of this pathway of surrender, uh, would you say it was more of a point that took place, or has it been more of a process? I think that um, I think it's been more of a process than a than a point. Uh, for me, it's kind of like I think crossing a line, but not crossing a line, but just more about making a commitment that you're going to follow Jesus each day. Because I mean, today is all that I have, and so today is the day that I want to surrender everything to Jesus and then tomorrow is another day and I want to be able to do the same thing tomorrow as as I'm doing today or I hope anyways and I just honestly I just really believe that God wants to use each one of us I think God wants us to know that it's never too late for us to start making decisions in our lives that that honor him you know the the, the tough decisions you know, step three in, in Celebrate Recovery, I'm the ministry leader here in Celebrate Recovery, as we said, and step three is that you make the decision to turn your life and turn your will over to the care of God, which in other words is surrender, what, what, what we're talking about here. And I just want to encourage people to, to do that. You know, don't worry about what you're going to have to give up or change. You need to worry about what you're going to miss if you don't. I mean, God has an amazing journey planned for, for everybody here. And all you've got to do is just say yes. Ask God to use you, because He will. Trust me on that one. <laughs> Keep your eyes open. Be willing to stand on the front lines. And I promise God's going to do amazing things with your lives that you just never thought was possible. And through the hurt of change, through the pain of being molded, God will bless your lives as He's blessed mine. I want to uh, I want to end with a scripture sure. that that I kind of feel like is a is a life verse for me, and uh, I think we're going to have it on the screen. It's Ezekiel 34, verse 16, and it says, "I will look for those that are lost. I will bring back those that wander off, bandage those that are hurt, and heal those that are sick." And I just think that. That is a blessing that you receive with a surrendered life. Well, Chuck, uh, thank you so much. And uh, would you join me in uh, giving Chuck a hand? Well, the final thing that uh, we realize is that Jesus loves it. When we surrender. He really does. Jesus loves it. When uh, we surrender. uh, Our lives to him. 
You know, the word uh, living water, the Greek word in the original text is pege, P-E-G-E. And it's not just a jar or a bucket full, but it actually says that there is this unending, continuing flow of water. And in Psalm 23, that famous psalm, uh, it has that same metaphor uh, that's connected to it, and it says this, You fill my cup until it overflows. And uh, I was thinking about how we would kind of end our celebration uh, today, and I wanted Chuck's testimony to kind of do its own thing. But when I thought about this whole concept of surrender, I, for some reason I, I kept thinking about the concept of closed hands. And... Um, If you would, I'd like all of you to just close your hands like a fist. Don't hit anybody, okay? Don't come up here and hit me, but just kind of like that. Just hold it for that for a second. And what I'd like you to do is just just hold that. And and the thought came to me that all of us are holding on to something. I don't know what that thing is for you, but we're all holding on to something. And it keeps us from being able to go and to, like, receive the living water. And so what we do is we might have tight fists, but we're taking our achievement plan or whatever plan it is with us, and we don't leave it there. We just keep taking it with us. And so I was thinking about it that, that we would just ask God today to reveal what that is. Some of you are like, I don't even know why I'm making a fist. I don't want to make a fist. You don't have to make a fist. But I have a feeling that I'm going to pray here in just a second. I'm going to ask God to share with you what is the thing that you have not surrendered that keeps you from drinking the living water. And whenever he reveals whatever that thing is, I'd like you to just ask him for the strength to open up and to let it go. You know, I never ask you guys to do anything that I wouldn't do. And this morning, with my kid being sick and everything else, I got up this morning and I was like, God, what is it? And all of a sudden, the word control and the word pride came to me. And this morning, about 8.30 in my office, I did this exact same exercise and I let it open. I don't know what that thing is for you, but we're going to pray about it and then we're going to close in a song. You guys will be out here. So um, let's pray. God, I ask right now that you would send your Holy Spirit in this place. Speak to us, God. We're listening. I pray that you right now would would show each person whatever that thing is that they're holding so tightly to that they have not surrendered it to you. I pray right now, God, that you would speak that into their ears. And God, whenever we're ready, God, I pray that you would give us the strength to open up our hands and say, we surrender it to you. We're open to you. For some of us, God, this isn't an easy thing to do. It's not, but it's the thing that you're calling right now for us to do. And God, give people strength to surrender whatever that thing is so that your name would be made great. I pray in Jesus' name.
surrender ourselves to you, uh, to be used by you for uh, your honor and for your glory. God, let us have open hands as we go through this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Uh, If you'd like prayer for anything, our prayer team uh, will be up here.